Well, we're starting now reading Job, Job 1 and 2. And Job is, in my opinion, about the hardest book of the Bible to really come to grips with. And I just want to make a few uh, comments that I hope might be helpful uh, as we read through the book to, to get some handle on what's going on here. First thing I'd like to say is that it's often assumed that the book of Job is a sort of a, a, a study of suffering and human response to it, and I suppose in a sense it, it is, but I think that is missing the point. In verse 1 that we've just read of chapter 1, Job was perfect and upright and one that feared God and hated evil. And at the end of the book, he's the same. He is presented as perfect and upright before God. So why then all this suffering and why all the debates and the mental suffering that he went through? And one reason, and this was put forward by Ted Spongberg, the first person I heard anyway, come out with this idea, one reason for it all was not actually for Job's sake. It's not the story of someone who is made perfect through suffering. He starts perfect and finishes perfect, obviously in the sense of uh, complete and mature. The whole thing was, I think, to demonstrate to other people, particularly to the friends and to his wife and those around him, the way that God works, it was to teach them something through Job's response. And that is one reason why we suffer. That is one window onto this endless problem that we have in attaching meaning to event in, in our human lives. Now here in chapter, chapters 1 and 2 we have, of course, the Satan, and I want to talk a little bit about that. Because, of course, the Satan doesn't occur in the rest of the book. And Job says that he has received both good and evil from the hand of God. So it's, it's not true, the, the sort of popular idea that God has given all the good things, all the sweet stuff, and Satan has come and given us all, all the bad stuff. Quite clearly, Job is in God's hand. And so in chapter 2, uh, verses 5 and 6, where the Satan, the adversary, uh, says to God, Put forth your hand now and touch him he's, God says okay he's in your hand verse 6 so the hand of God is the hand of the Satan in the end the Satan the adversary is in a sense God now <clears throat> I want to share with you the idea that you, you may or may not have encountered before that in Hebrew thought and it's reflected throughout the Bible in Old and New Testaments Whatever happens here on earth is reflected in heaven. There is a court of heaven in which the angels appear before God representing nations and people, etc. That's why, although angels cannot sin, in the book of Revelation you have the angel of the churches, uh, different churches, being rebuked for this, that or the other. Not that the angel sinned, but that the angel was representing that church in the, the throne room of God. You see this in the book of Daniel, where half the book is talking about what actually happened physically on earth, and then you've got the more angelic side of it up in heaven in the second part of the book, where you can see that what's going on here on earth is a reflection of what's going on up in heaven. You may remember that incident in, uh, in Chronicles where there's a discussion amongst the angels about how Ahab is to be killed, and the angels come up with different ideas, one of them says, I'll make his prophets lie to him. And God says, right, you're the one. And the angel is sent forth out from the throne room of God to earth to carry out that idea. 
So the angels, although they are sinless, are not unlimited. They don't know the exact time when Jesus will come. That's Matthew 24:36. And I would like to suggest that what happened here when Job's sons came before him and uh, in, uh, in chapter 1 verse 5 is reflected in the sons of God, the angels, coming before God in heaven. Because it must be intended between verses 5 and 6 that, of chapter 1 that we see a connection. Job and his sons, God and his sons. And at the end of verse 5, Job continually, the AV says, day by day, the Hebrew says, Job day by day offered for them and prayed for them. And then verse 6, now there was a day on one of those days that the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. So the sons of God is a phrase that can refer to believers. Now are we the sons of God, 1 John 3, 1. And yet, within Job, it is used in chapter 38 about the angels. And that is intentional, because the believers here on earth have guardian angels that reflect the position that's here on earth in heaven. It is acted out, if you like, before the throne of God. And the Satan came amongst them, the adversary. Now, I cannot see in anything here written about the Satan that he sins. He observes, he makes observations, which are reasonable observations. And God acts upon them in order to uh, test them and to debunk them. So I would suggest then that the adversary here is an angel, admittedly reflecting perhaps the attitudes of people on earth. Maybe Job did have within the ecclesia of his day, within the amongst the sons of God of his day, an adversary. And that adversary thought, huh, this guy is so rich, it's not surprising he believes in God so much, but I bet if you took all that away from him, he would curse God and die. And so God recognized that, and the angel representing that person reasoned that out with God, and God said, okay, don't take his life, but let's put all that to the test. Now, the whole point of our studying the book of Job is to try to, as I say, attach meaning to event in our own lives, and to try to discern in outlined terms how God may be working with us through his angels in a similar way. I've looked back on my life, as I'm sure you have on yours, and tried to understand why certain things happened. And one of the things that, and I can only speak personally, and you have to work this all out in your context, one of the things that I think that I have suffered from, I have suffered from, is jealousy from other believers. And I look back at some of the, the things that happened in my life that were clearly from God, and it seems to me that God was in dialogue with them, that God heard the thought of their mind, or oh, even their words said to me many years ago, and God therefore responded appropriately in my life to test me. Now, of course, the day is not done quite yet with, with me, uh, nor with you. So that's one reason for affliction, or let's not only talk in terms of suffering and affliction, but one reason for the hand of God, both positively and apparently negatively, in human life.
So the idea that the adversary was an angel should not be unduly shocking to us because in Numbers 22, with the, the situation with Balaam there, the angel of the Lord stands in his way as a Satan, as an adversary to him. So we've got to try and strip this word Satan of its negative connotation. In the original uh, language at the time, Satan simply meant an adversary, for good or for bad, with no uh, bad connotation. It is culture since then which has added to the word the idea of evil uh, and maliciousness, uh, etc., which is simply not there in the original word. So this Satan stands as an adversary, just as the Satan angel did to, to Balaam. Incidentally, talking about Balaam, you remember how Balaam came to a walled path and he, could, uh, he couldn't get past the angel, the Satan, the adversary that stood in the way and so his donkey fell down underneath him and then he sees the angel. Job 19 verse 8 but Job alludes to that when he says, God has walled up my way that I cannot pass. Now that is without question an allusion to Numbers 22.22, where exactly the same happens to Balaam at the hands of a Satan angel. Now that sort of makes sense to me because the Satan does things to Job, like smiting him with his skin disease, which no man could do. This was clearly a supernatural being of some kind, it, it seems to me. And the Satan says in, in verse 7 that he has come from going to and fro in the earth. Well, that's taken out of, uh, or it's connected with Zechariah 1.11, where the eyes of the Lord, the angels, are described as doing just that, going to and fro in the earth. There was also the idea in the Persian Empire of the king's eye, which went to and fro in the earth. And these were the agents, really, of the king, who went around the empire just seeing what was going on, seeing what was happening with different people, reporting back to the king, suggesting courses of action. And I would like to suggest that the book of Job is especially relevant to Israel, whilst, or to Judah, rather, whilst they were in Persia. Why I say that is that if you read through Job, certainly in the Oxford or Cambridge editions of the AV, you will see in the margin all the references there to the latter sections of Isaiah, the prophecies about the restoration and the suffering of Judah in Babylon. So I think Job is being presented as the suffering servant, as Judah in exile, who was going to, if they stuck faithful with God, was going to eventually come to glory and justification. That is not to say that Job is not a very ancient book. <clears throat> I think it, it, it's clear that it, it, it is. And it, according to the uh, genealogies in 1 Chronicles, when it talks about Jobab there as one of the uh, ancient kings uh, in, uh, in Edom, that Jobab would appear to be our Job that we have here. So it was a very ancient book, but it seems to me that many of the Old Testament books were rewritten under inspiration, maybe by Ezra and Nehemiah in Babylon, and made relevant, as I say, under inspiration to the exiles as they were there in Babylon. And so the idea of the king's eye, which was so common in Persia is sort of appropriate here. 
and it's one of many examples, as I see it, of where the book is being made relevant to Judah in exile. So then, <clears throat> the angels brought all this about. They had questions. Well, this Satan angel had questions. And as I say, they are not unlimited in their knowledge. There are a number of places in the Bible, more and more of them, the more you look for them, where God is spoken of in what I would call the language of limitation. Where, for example, Genesis uh, 22 about Abraham, an angel tells Abraham to offer his son Isaac, and when he's willing to do so, he says, Now I know, now I know that you believe me. That language is difficult to apply to God himself. Did God really not know? He who knows the end from the beginning? Well, there's different ways of explaining it, but one of them, I would submit, is to say that this is not so much talking about God, but the angels. You've got it again in Deuteronomy 8, where we're told that God led Israel in the wilderness, fed them with manna, that I might know what was in your heart. Who fed them with manna? The angels. Man did eat angels' food, we read in the Psalms. The food given by angels. I led you in the wilderness. Who led Israel in the wilderness? The angel in the pillar of fire and cloud. And I did that so that I might know what was in your heart. This again is without question in an angelic context. You've got a similar case there with Hezekiah 2 Chronicles 32 verse 31 that God left him so that he might know what was in his heart. You have it in the Septuagint anyway, it's a lot clearer than in the, uh, in the Masoretic text. In Genesis 18, verse 21, when those angels come to uh, Sodom and they're debating amongst themselves what to do, and they, they wonder about Abraham and they sort of discuss with themselves. Genesis 18, uh, 21, talking about uh, Sodom, I will go down now and see whether they have actually done, I'm quoting from the Septuagint, whether they have actually done according to the cry which has come unto me. So there's a sort of question there. Is it as bad as we hear? Let's go down, have a look. Now that is applicable to angels. And it's of course angels here in Genesis 18 that say that. So it does seem to me that the angel had this question about Job and yes he may have been reflecting an adversary of his amongst the sons of God within the ecclesia of his day but it seems to me that that angel also in his own right as it were had these questions now does this mean then that the angels are kind of playing around with us and messing around just for their own education well no not in that cynical sense but I think that we should be prepared in our search for meaning in human life. And as I say, this trying to attach meaning to event, we should be prepared to factor that in. And I would put it no stronger than that. You know, Paul says that we are made a spectacle to men and to angels. It's as if they also, in the auditorium, watching with men, our response to situations in our lives. 
And of course this was so relevant to Judah there in captivity. They had been led there by the angels and they would be led back from there by angels. That's the message I take from Ezekiel 1 and 10 about the cherubim, this huge angelic system that uh, took them into captivity and that would return them if they wished to. And so a number of the verses that that we have here in chapter 2 and throughout the book when, for example, in verse 8, he sits down among the ashes and laments you know, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept when we remembered Zion. And Job actually talks uh, in a couple of places about the old days when my tabernacle or my temple was secure. That's odd language to use for someone of his time living before the temple was built and yet it makes sense if the book was rewritten under inspiration with reference to Judah in captivity remembering Zion there in their depression by the rivers of Babylon and his whole cursing of the day that he was was born in in chapter 3 looking for light and uh, not finding it and not wanting to be alive and feeling that the the thing which I greatly feared has come upon me, chapter 3, verse 25. So much language here is appropriate to Judah as they sat by the rivers of Babylon. And yet the whole point is that God restored the fortunes of Job. He returned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. And I think the idea might well be, might well be, that the restoration of Judah likewise would happen when and if they decided to intercede for others. Don't forget, Job was a Gentile. If the connection with the Jobab in 1 Chronicles uh, 6 is uh, is true and, uh, uh, and valid, which it seems it is, then he was a Gentile. So I think that again has something to say to Judah in exile, that wherever you are, however far you are from God, in your dispersion, there is a way back. And through affliction, which clearly was brought upon him by God or the Satan or the adversary, this is all part of God's work finally to restore us, and not only to restore us, but through that process to be a witness to others. And as I have said uh, at the start, one of the reasons for all this that happened in Job's life was not only for his own sake, for his own development, but so that others would be witnessed to and would come to know the true God. Now, what all this means, I think, for us is that, yes, the hand of God is active in our lives, and the more Job thought about it as the book goes on, he realizes this more and more. You know, he says, wow, whatever, whoever is man, just made out of dust and water, that you should be so interested in him, that you should micro-level get involved in a little man like me on the earth. And all the philosophical objections that the friends come up with, saying that, well, yeah, you're in this position because you've sinned, etc. No, that that is shown to be too primitive an understanding that if you if you're good, you get blessing, and if you if you sin, if you mess up, then you get you get suffering. And this would have been so relevant for Judah in exile. 
who had thought that, uh, as we read again in the prophets, who thought my God has forgotten me. That God had not at all forgotten them, but he was working with them to a breathtaking uh, dimension and extent in order to restore them. For Judah in, in exile, their big Satan, as they saw it, was Babylon uh, and later the, the Persian Empire. And yet here, the Satan is being shown to be God, ultimately. You know, he's in the hand of Satan in one sense, but that is the hand of God, as I said, putting verses 5 and 6 of chapter 2 together. And all the way through the book, you never read any more after chapter 2 about Satan. It's always God. Have pity upon me, O my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. So they were being taught that, look, these people that seem to have been so awful to you, in a sense that was God. And you know, the prophets made it clear before the Babylonian invasion came that these were actually God's armies, that God was sending them upon his own people. That helps us. I think, in trying to relate better to those whom we perceive to have hurt us. It is a poor response and reaction, but I mean psychological response and reaction, to those who have hurt us, which cause so many people to stumble, because they get obsessed with this. And particularly if those people are uh, within the, the community, in fact, the community of believers. In fact, I would say that that is probably the number one reason that I see why people leave. Because they feel that someone in the community did something wrong to them. And this is where this ancient book suddenly becomes alive to us in the 21st century. Because, in one sense, this is what happened to Job so long ago, that there was a son of God amongst the sons of God who had these thoughts against him, of jealousy or questioning or whatever. And in the end, Job comes to see that it is God working through that, not only for his own development, but in order to manifest his glory and his truth wider and to convert those people, or that son of God who had these jealous thoughts or whatever, uh, to convert them to himself. And that even with those people, who have hurt us and harmed us, that God is at work in that person's life, and God is in a way manifest through that person. Now, if only we can perceive that, this gives a whole new dimension to suffering at the hands of other people, particularly at the hands of those who call themselves amongst the sons of God. And if only we can get that clear then we will not go the way of stumbling that I'm sure we have seen so many go. It's not because of disagreement on a doctrinal level that people leave, normally, not from what I have seen. It's not necessarily because people simply want to go to the world. It is normally, in my experience, and I suspect in yours, it is because people get upset with other people. And this is... I think a major theme of this book, that the Satan, the adversary, no matter how you want to interpret that Satan or adversary, as a fellow believer, uh, as a, a, a Gentile who just was, was cynical about these people, even if you want to believe in a personal Satan, not that I think the, the record supports that at all, but uh, whatever, 
the, the bottom line is that God is greater and God is working through that person and that their hand on you is in fact his hand. And that's why after this chapter 2, we don't hear about the Satan anymore. It's rather like the whole story of demons, really, the language of demons in the New Testament. If you plot where the terms demons and demon possession, etc. occur, they're nearly all at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. As the New Testament goes on, you hardly read about them again. You read about healing rather than casting out of demons. And I think the reason for that is that, okay, Jesus went along with the language of the day, with their limited understandings, but the point was, ultimately, that God is far greater than any demon that you can imagine. Even if you want to believe in them, look, God is so much greater that, effectively, they don't exist. It is God's hand that is, that is working in, in, in sickness, and etc., and it's the same here. You get Satan mentioned in these first two chapters that we just read, and in the rest of the book, you don't read about Satan. You read about God bringing all these things upon him. And if only we can get this clear, that whoever is our stumbling block, whoever is the person that we wake up at night thinking about, who makes us so uh, depressed, angry, all these negative kind of emotions which, as I say, have the power to destroy so many people's faith, and this is what's happened so often in our experience, if only we can perceive that that is the hand of God behind that person, and that it is so much the hand of God to the point that effectively, de facto, they, as an individual, are not an item in all this. This is of God. If only we can stick to that then in the end we will come to that same glorious restoration that happened to Job. And if only Judah in, ex in exile in Babylon had perceived all this, then they too could have come to a far greater restoration than ever happened to them.